I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers, in association with the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. In this special series with global leaders, writers, and campaigners, we will be reflecting on more than a year of challenge and change as we ask the question, how has COVID changed us? Today, I'm delighted to welcome Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and also the longest-serving Chancellor of the Exchequer in modern British history. Described by former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney as a person of action, he's campaigning for global change with his new book, Seven Ways to Change the World, How to Fix the Most Pressing Issues We Face. To discuss this and more, Gordon, welcome to Changemakers. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to be on Changemakers, and I hope we can talk about the changes that can come about. Most most definitely. Um, we've got a question, though, which is, how has COVID changed us? How do you think COVID has changed you and your thinking? I think it's changed uh, every family in the country. I think it's made us more aware of our own vulnerability. It's more uh, made us more aware of our morbidity. I think it's also made us uh, more aware of our responsibilities to each other. You know, in the 1980s, people talked about you can't buck the market. Well, we've bucked the market in so many different ways in the last year that nobody will ever talk about that again. Mm. The government's the employer of last resort, the insurer of last resort, the market maker of last resort. And I don't think people will say ever again, there's no such thing as society. I think that's changed. I think people realize that uh, they depend on other people and that they crave, even with the great advantages of the internet and everything else, they crave meeting other people and understand the importance of uh, communities and neighborhoods. So I think we will never be the same again in the sense that uh, people's uh, attitudes to society and people's attitudes to markets have changed. The question, however, that worries me is that this last year has seen a, a virtual absence of international cooperation mm. and we've seen nationalism become a dominant ideology. We now talk about vaccine nationalism, we talk about medical protectionism, and I think we've really got to rethink how we look at the world as a whole and the necessity for global cooperation. And the theme of my book has been really global problems need global solutions. Mm. And once you accept the are global problems, you've got to have uh, a degree of international cooperation well, to sort these problems well, out. Well, the book is the repose, isn't it, to that global nationalism, economic nationalism, the sort of problems that you're outlining there. But before we get into that, because I'm, I'll, I'll declare an interest, I, I read the book and I, and I really enjoyed it, thought it was a, a great read. But I wonder whether in this last period, the change in you is that actually you have become, uh, or you certainly seem to become very, very optimistic about the opportunity for change. I mean, you say in your own words that my public image as a finance minister is one of the sombre, perhaps verging on the gloomy. There's not much that's gloomy about your about your writing in this book. Well, it's been a terrible year. We've got to remember uh, three and a half million people have lost, lost their lives. But what I take out of people's response is that in particular, young people uh, want to see things change. They want to see things uh, made better. I mean, I quite honestly was shocked. And this is why I started writing the book. So what I saw a year ago uh, when countries just could not get together to cooperate. And I thought there must be a better way of putting the case for international cooperation than we've done. And we must begin to see how dependent we are on each other and how this interdependent world could be managed in a far better way. Mm. So I came to the conclusion, looking at the medical protectionism and everything else, our failure to get our act together on the virus, I mean, not even a proper exchange of information when there were health problems in different countries, our inability to stop the disease crossing frontiers. Uh, I came to the conclusion that we had to persuade people that international cooperation can work. And luckily, we've seen in the last year, Black Lives Matters, we've seen the Me Too movement, we've seen the climate change movement. All of these give me hope that large social movements that are world 
worldwide in their in their reach uh, are going to have a huge uh, impact on uh, young people's uh, thinking over the next few years. And I think that is going to give me hope, and I hope lots of other people hope that the world could be a, a better place, safer, greener, healthier, fairer over the next few years. I mean, the two the two brushstrokes of crisis: dan- danger and opportunity you wrote about i mean we're, we're very clear on the danger tell us a little bit more about that i mean you've, you've sort of talked about the opportunity a little bit there but in terms of what our leaders need to hear in terms of what they're really playing for now how, how do you see it well i uh, remember being uh, chairing an international monetary fund meeting when i was a finance minister a few years ago and there were huge demonstrations outside the meeting uh, and there was all sorts of banners i saw looking down on the on the demonstrators complaining uh, and one of them i saw was worldwide campaign against global Globalization. So it was irony of ironies. People had given up on the idea that uh, globalization could work. And here was a worldwide campaign against globalization. Mm. I thought then, we have got to make the case for global cooperation. And when I started to look at all the different issues, so health, it's quite clear that uh, nobody's safe till everybody's safe. This virus is not over till it's over everywhere. And therefore, the global cooperation that I thought was a good thing is absolutely essential. It's imperative. We can't succeed without it if we're going to get rid of this uh, virus. And if it continues to mutate and it spreads, it will come back to hit us in one way or another, whether it's from India, Nepal, or for, from Africa. But then I started looking at all the other issues that the world faces that are now clearly global problems, climate change, uh, tax uh, tax avoidance. We've just been looking at uh, how you can change the rules on that. Nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation. And then, of course, I looked at the sustainable development goals, these goals that have been set by the international community. Everybody uh, signed up to them, but nobody has been prepared to pay the cost of implementing them. And I thought, well, let's see if we can make the case for making not just advances uh, in making people believe in the importance of cooperation, but let's have practical measures, which is what I'm proposing in each mm-hmm. area where we can do something about each of the problems. So each chapter is, if you like, an introduction to one of the big global problems we've got to deal with. And then I say, well, look, here are potential solutions and let's look at them. And even if we can't sort of fundamentally change the architecture of global decision-making, which is something I had wanted to do when we had the financial crisis in 2009, and we just did not get agreement on that, perhaps we can show issue by issue uh, that there are shared solutions to shared problems And we can convince people that if you can solve problems in, say, climate change, you can also begin to solve them when it comes to nuclear weapons and when it Mm. comes to the the delivery of the world from poverty, malnutrition, deprivation, hunger, all the problems that should not be problems in an advanced world as we are in, but are still problems for millions, indeed billions of people today. So so seven big ungoverned spaces, you describe them as the radical end of the possible and the credible end of the desirable. I mean, is is this the middle way for a global generation? I don't think it's the middle way. I think it's the radical way. But look, if you want to put forward radical solutions, they have got to be credible. You can be uh, radical without being credible, as I say, and credible without being radical. What you've got to do is show people that the radical solutions you're putting forward are indeed credible. So when I come to nuclear weapons, there's a huge danger that we will have perhaps half a dozen Middle Eastern powers that have been contemplating, we know, becoming nuclear weapon states, particularly under the Trump regime. And we have seen a huge buildup in nuclear 
arms more and more sophisticated, uh, more and more lethal over the last few years, particularly as China has joined the ranks of very big nuclear powers. And I then started to look at, well, we, we made some advances when we were in government. And, and of course, the Reagan-Gorbachev deals in the 1980s made for a lot of arms limitation treaties. But if we're going to see proliferation, and let's say nine states going to 15, we've got to do something about it. So I'm proposing mm. that you ban nuclear te- weapon testing, that you ban the enrichment of uranium plutonium. Actually, Joe Biden has suggested these things during his presidential campaign. And, and then I'm suggesting we've got to look at no... Uh, first use of nuclear weapons. And we've got to look at what's called the sole purpose of nuclear weapons. And if we can show there is no reason for people to use nuclear weapons, then we can begin to end the proliferation, but also, of course, uh, de-escalate in a way that could make it possible for us in our generation to see a nuclear weapon-free world. Mm. But, But this is a campaigning read. If you had told me I was interviewing not a former prime minister, but an aspirant prime minister, I think I would have seen this as your prospectus. And it reminded me very much I, I mentioned just as we were preparing for the interview, I, I interviewed Kerry Kennedy and we spent a lot of time talking about Robert Kennedy and the Ripples of Hope speech that he gave in Cape Town in terms of hope is not a fair weather friend. You've got to fight hard for it. You've got to go out there and win the case. You've got to win over the silent majority. I mean, this felt like somebody who's got a lot of unfinished business ahead of them, Gordon. Well, I've been very influenced, obviously, by Robert Kennedy, and uh, I've talked to to Kerry Kennedy, and she has been a great tribune for the ideas, particularly his ideas about, uh, and her ideas about the expansion of human rights in a world where we've seen only in the last, what, two weeks in Belarus, human rights just treated uh, so so dismally and abysmally when a journalist arrested, freedom of expression is denied, and even the open skies uh, are not open and free anymore. So I've learned from, from these people, but Equally, you know, when you look at the problems we now face, we've had a bigger crisis in 2020 than we had in 2009. And yet that was the biggest crisis economically in peacetime since the 1930s. So we have a world where we have bigger, more intransigent, deeper, more profound challenges that have got to be met. And therefore, I think uh, whatever experience I've had and whatever lessons I've learned, I I feel I've got a duty to try to communicate them to other people who will make decisions in the future, and particularly having young uh, teenage uh, children. I think it's really important that I understand that they feel that the previous generation failed. They feel, Mm. uh, and they're growing up, you know, you've got teenagers growing up now who've lived through a global financial crisis, uh, years of austerity, climate emergency, now a medical pandemic, and at the same time, Brexit, I suppose, for, for people living in Britain, all these different crises that make them wonder, what were we doing? Could we not have done much better? And of course, I want us to do better in the future. But, but I suppose this then brings us on to the question about how do you create that change? Because I think when you read the book, the prescription about the challenges and the issues, I, I think few could disagree with those as a, as a, as a big to-do list. But if we want to reset global politics as the World Economic Forum aims to do. That is also against the backdrop of people in authority and power and their abilities to do so. I mean, in a New Statesman piece, you raise the issue of amateurs and Silvio Berlusconi talking about you and fellow ministers in Paris because, well, maybe you could pick up the story, Gordon, in terms of of the photo shoot. 
Well, th this was 2008. It was at the height of the financial crisis. Lehman Brothers, people may remember, had just collapsed. Ben Bernanke was telling us uh, later that he thought 18 of the 20 financial institutions that were the most prestigious in America were actually in danger. And we met in Paris one weekend with the pre president of France, the chancellor of Germany. Uh, we had the head of the European Central Bank, the president of the European Council, and we had uh, Berlusconi, the Italian prime minister. And we maybe spoke for an hour, an hour and a half um, about uh, the problems. And I, I was really saying, look, Europe's got big problems, not just an American problem. Banks are going to go under. We've got to act. And we broke for coffee. And then suddenly overhead was uh, Berlusconi uh, shouting in, in French, amateurs, amateurs, he was saying, c'est song, amateurs. And uh, people said, well, there he is, the businessman, politician. He's got a solution to the crisis. We're all amateurs. He's got the solution. And then he said, amateurs, he said, don't they realize we've got a press conference in an hour, a protocol, and none of them, none of these leaders have brought uh, makeup artists with them. <laughs> and, uh, you see, that, I read uh, that and I burst out <laughs> laughing. But then I thought, there's actually a really serious point here, because although one or two of them have gone. I mean, essentially, there's a very similar cast of leaders that are dealing with, you know, a huge social, economic, environmental series of challenges. I mean, wherever you look at it, I mean, the requirement on our leaders to to grasp the nettle of these challenges feels like an overwhelming task. Well, I think you could blame leaders, and there has certainly been weak global leadership, uh, particularly under President Trump. And then I think you can blame bureaucratic inefficiencies. I think you could also say there's a huge number of economic uh, entrenched economic interests that are preventing us doing certain things, particularly, let's say, on climate change. But I think you've also got to look at how leaders have been able to exploit popular sentiment, populist sentiment, and how nationalism has become a dominant ideology of our age. Mm. And I think if we don't understand that, then we'll not be able to move beyond it. You know, after 2010, you know, we left office then and we had austerity, but of course, we also had protectionism. We had tariffs being uh, imposed. We had uh, immigration controls becoming more frequent. We had building of walls. You know, the 66 walls around the world separating countries, twice as many as there were at the time when the Berlin Wall was supposed to herald the end of wars. And then, of course, we had this, what, what you might call aggressive nationalism, America first. Remember Trump's phrase, America first and only. And then you had China first, you had India first, you had Russia first, and you could go around the world, Turkey first. And all these countries asserting that uh, they would do whatever they wanted on their own terms and would not really be part of the international cooperation that you and I may think is necessary. And that led directly to vaccine uh, Well, I was going to uh, ask, there's a lot of countries saying it's us first on, on things like the vaccines. I mean, is this is, I mean, you've spoken passionately about this issue in the last few weeks in terms of we're not, no one is safe and, until everyone is safe. Is that a message that you think is being heard? I think it is being heard. I mean, there is an opinion poll that we published only a few days ago in, in the United Kingdom, but we did it in America, we did it in Canada, we did it in Italy, France, and Germany. And what we found was that uh, when people were asked, do you think Britain should pay its uh, fair share based on its ability to pay to vaccinate the whole world? 79% uh, of those who uh, gave uh, an, an answer that they, they feel, felt strongly about said, we must pay our fair share. Only 21% said no. In America, it was 75, 25, so a bit less. Actually, in France and Germany, it was a bit lower than that. 
But generally, you saw people beginning to understand this message. It's not over anywhere until it's over everywhere. As long as I'm afraid, everybody's going to be afraid and everybody will be afraid until nobody's afraid. And and so I think you may call it enlightened self-interest here rather than simply altruism. But I do think people understand the world is the stage here that if we don't solve the problem in every country, it's going to haunt us, come back to haunt us in, in, in our own country. But I suppose in terms of the sentiment, what you've just said there is what you might hear our own vaccines minister say, or, or indeed our own current prime minister. But then it comes down to the choices because it's not just a it's not just a, an investment question; it's a supply question. And you know, if you if you were prime minister today, would you say, for example, that you would forego vaccinating under thirty year olds for creating a more equitable global solution? Well, I, I don't really think it comes to that. It's about increasing the supply of vaccines around the world and doing it radically and quickly. You know, and I've been proposing that we agree a plan. There's no point in going around the table and putting the begging bowl around and saying, look, you give what you can and you, you, you pass on what you can of vaccines you're not using. You've got to have a concerted plan that underwrites the financing of vaccination of the world. That plan has got to be money put on the table by the richest countries. Then you build up the manufacturing capacity. Then you build up the supply in each continent with factories probably built in Africa and elsewhere. And that can be done very quickly. So uh, the real question is, are we prepared to pay for the vaccination of the rest of the world? The G7 countries like Britain would have to pay 67%, about two thirds, according to any study of what is fair assessment of the ability to pay. Britain would pay about 5%. Now, that is a price worth paying because, first of all, you get your economy back to work. And so we've estimated you're 30 times the return from uh, vaccinating than the cost of vaccinating. Uh, And then, of course, uh, you you end the fear that people have about the disease spreading. And of course, it's perfectly affordable because of the savings you're going to make, even the additional tax revenue is going to get. And it's so short-sighted of the world to decide that it can't get itself together, its act together, uh, to have a plan for vaccination. We had a plan in Britain that worked by pre-ordering. You need a plan for the world that works by pre-ordering. And what I want is the G7 and the leaders of the G7, not just to talk about generously donating uh, vaccines, that, which is called dose sharing around the world. That's important, but it's not enough. Perhaps mm. you can get to a billion vaccines. We need 11 billion vaccines to travel the world so that we can inoculate uh, people in some of the poorest places as well as people in the richest countries. Now, at the moment, only 1% of the vaccines have gone to Africa. And that means that we've got two worlds. We've got a world that is vaccinated and safe. We've got a world that is not vaccinated and uh, at risk of dying. This then brings it into Technicolor, I think, because it, it speaks to how we make change happen. Because I suppose a lot of what you're saying appeals to the self-interest of actually we're not safe in the UK or the US is not safe in the US until the whole world is safe. You made a very similar argument on economic inequality in a recent Financial Times article where you said, if a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. But if you're making that appeal on self-interest and still the change doesn't come, how far can you take an argument like yours where you're saying, look, it's a rational, reasonable thing to do to make these radical changes? I mean, do you, do you get a sense but, that but look, it's I, happening? I didn't, I didn't make the, the, the argument purely on self-interest. I think you'll find in the final chapter when I look at the reasons to be hopeful, I do see a, a greater empathy and I do see a greater solidarity now when people realise just how dependent we are on each, each other. 
You know, it was really interesting a few years ago in Britain when the issue of child migrants who'd been uh, refugees from uh, Syria and from other countries was uh, born of contention about whether we should let children into the country. And the government was not being uh, very friendly on this issue and a campaign developed. But what they found in the campaign was that the argument that appealed to people was it was in Britain's great traditions uh, Mm. that we helped those who were in difficulty. It it wasn't uh, just about some economic benefit, although, of course, uh, there could be from this happening. But it was about Britain's great traditions. And people look back to Sir Nicholas Winton, whom I, whom I knew well, actually, who brought all these uh, children, freed them from Nazi domination, the Jewish children he brought to Britain. And the people who led that campaign to actually get the government to accept that child migrants could come into the country were the people like Alf Doves, who himself yeah, we had, had... We been... had Lord Doves on the show well, just, well, just well, a couple of weeks ago, making exactly... Well, that's good exactly this point. But you see, the argument argument was that it's the best of British values, and it's in the best British traditions that we help those who are in difficulty. And I do think that this idea that we are empathetic and that we can show solidarity with people, sometimes people we never know, but understand the situation is really part of the British philosophical tradition, as well as something that we've practiced in in recent years. So I'm not basing my argument purely on enlightened self-interest, although I do think that that is very prominent in what we think about uh, uh, vaccination, when clearly we're worried, everybody's worried about their own family, but they uh, are prepared to look at what we can do to help other families. But I do think empathy and solidarity are important virtues that we've got to cultivate. And, you know, when I'm talking about the nationalist ideologies, which are basically us versus them ideologies, I mean, patriotism is loving your country. It's about the celebration of us nationalism is about the resentment of them. It's about us versus them. It's seeing enemies and almost inventing enemies where they don't exist. And Orwell, who wrote about this in the 1940s, he said it required a moral effort for Mm -hmm. us, if you like, to move, to take, if you like, the nationalist instinct to, to be adversarial and to think of us versus them and rescue patriotism from nationalism. And that's really what we've got to do. Well, Be I, proud I, of our country, but but don't see uh, it as a zero-sum game. The big war, as I say in the book, is not against another country. The big enemy is poverty, it's deprivation, it's squalor, it's, uh, it's inequality, it's pollution. And all these enemies have got to be fought by us working together. And in the book, you also, in, the, in that final chapter, talk about the idea of a silent majority. You know, you sort of bring the, the kind of the Nixon idea of the silent majority to life in the sense that there are deeper traditions, as you point to. But is there also, do you get that sense that there's a deeper will that actually, if this argument is well made, you could actually move along the lines that you're, you're advocating in the book? Well, I've seen this, this at work in communities which have been faced with uh, tragedies, communities that have had to come together when you know an industry collapses or, or jobs are, are, are destroyed. Uh, and people are willing to come together to fight for the common good. And I quote uh, these two terrible instances in the last uh, 15 years in Norway, where Prime Minister Stoltenberg had to deal with a a massacre of over 90 young people on an island uh, by a a, a racist and actually a a pro-Nazi person who who shot at these uh, children. And then we had, in New Zealand, we had the the Muslims who were were also assassinated by brutal uh, killer. And what really came out of these tragedies was both leaders, Jacinda Ardern and, of course, uh, Jens Stoltenberg. They, they actually spoke to the country and they quoted uh, both of them, one of the people who had been uh, grieving for relatives lost, and both of them were saying, fight hate with hope, fight hate with love. 
And both of the statements to the countries united their countries and showed actually uh, what people are capable of. People are capable of coming together mm. around common and shared values and capable of uniting to do things that are very important together. And we've, we've lost that, I think, uh, because Britain has been a very divided country. Europe is a very divided continent at the moment. And nationalism is part of the problem that we're, we're facing. But if we could rediscover the values that we share in common and build, a, if you like, a, a, a national project in each country around them that is patriotic, rather than nationalistic, I think we would do better both as countries and as, as continents. And, and is that what might come of COVID, that actually we rediscover a kinder politics, a more community yeah, I look, I look through the instances in the last 50 years where the world has been able to come together and make big changes that might have surprised people because they might not have thought them possible. I mean, one was clearly the the ozone layer and how we managed to, to, to deal with that so that it's not seen as a, a big environmental problem in the way it was 30 or 40 years ago. Another is that we, we managed to deliver debt relief and uh, help for Africa. We managed to get the HIV AIDS drugs uh, to people in a way that people had not thought possible. And we were dealing with a a crisis where lives were being lost at a terrible rate, then we did come together to fight the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, we underpinned the world economy by a trillion and we got out of that economic crisis quickly. And of course, the, the Paris Climate Change Agreement was a great success after the failure that had happened in, in, mm. in Copenhagen. And I give at the end of the book that what I think is the best example, which is, uh, you know, the Reagan-Gorbachev discussions in the 1980s, where Reagan says to Gorbachev, because Reagan was interested in Star Wars and everything else, he said, if, a, if an asteroid uh, arrived uh, in, 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 on Earth and we were under attack, would you help us? And, and Gorbachev said, of course. And, and Reagan said, we too. And this mm. sort of we too penetrated into the nuclear talks. So there was an agreement. And then we had the International Space Station. Now, is it not remarkable that above our heads every few hours, this International Space Station passes above us, which is manned by Soviet and American astronauts together. And they cannot get to space without working together. The launches are Russian. The space station is really American technology. Neither of them could deliver on the International Space Station without working with each other. Now, I keep thinking if you can cooperate, even when daggers are drawn on other issues uh, between Russia and America, in what was the most hotly contested area of the Cold War, which was the space wars, who was to get to the moon, who was to dominate space, if you can then cooperate in the heavens and cooperate out there in space, surely we can do better at cooperating here on Earth. Well, the UK has its opportunity to make its mark on that, on that whole debate through a, a series of global gatherings and conferences from the G7 to COP26 this year. Do, do you wish, Gordon, that you were still in the hot seat for this sort of these sorts of discussions right now? Because there is a kind of come of the hour moment here, isn't there? Well, of course you hope that you could make a difference. And, you know, the frustration of being out of government is you know that certain things that might take you years to do in opposition or if you're just on the sidelines, you could do within a minute, an hour, a day uh, mm. within government. I mean, you have the power to make decisions that are life-changing and that's not available to you uh, and, and you've simply got to try to persuade people. So these are essays in, in persuasion. But I do think that uh, we're at a turning point now. I think we've got to understand that we know what's wrong. I think people do understand that they've seen things go wrong, but we haven't yet uh, got the willpower to put things right 
great. So this is either a turning point where history turns, or it's like 1848 was described, the year of the revolutions in the 19th century. It's the turning point at which history fails to turn. And we've got a choice to make. And popular pressure will make a difference. You know, you've seen in the last few weeks how the issue of vaccination has come back onto the agenda with the prime minister now saying he wants to vaccinate the world by the end of 2022. You've seen how climate change is back on the agenda. Is that soon enough, by the way? Would you, would you? No, no, I think, I think you could do it a a bit quicker, but I I think the question is, have you got a plan to do it? And I don't Mm. yet see the plan. I want to see the plan and I would support it if we could get the the plan, but it will require the funding that's necessary. Right. And then we've, then we've seen on climate change, governments are now discussing requiring companies to disclose their carbon footprints. That is one of the proposals I put in the book. I, I wrote it a few months ago, but now we're actually seeing some progress. We've got to do something to help the poorest countries. The We've got to um, find the money to do that. And of course, we've got to be far more ambitious about our targets because we're not going to meet the 1.5% right. degrees now- unless we are more ambitious. Now, I feel, and now having interviewed you, a lot of people that have interviewed you and a lot of people that know you say, this is a man transformed, that he's got his mission, read the book, there's an effervescence there. Do you think you'd be a better leader now than you were back in the day that you were in Downing Street? Do you think you've got different qualities now, Gordon? Well, of course. And I think uh, Tony uh, Blair himself has has said that it's an irony that the moment you're leaving is the moment that you're probably best equipped to do the job because you've learned so much and the experience has made you a better decision maker. I mean, I think you also need time to reflect. And I've had plenty of time to reflect as a politician who's, who's no longer uh, in, in formal day-to-day politics. So yeah, I've got both the benefit of experience and the benefit of uh, a mm. period of uh, reflection. And I think b- both have allowed me to, to to look at issues that demand attention, in my view, and, and there are pressing problems that are got to be uh, addressed. I think anybody looking at the book will say that I try to give people an introduction to the problem by not trying to uh, be too academic. I, I want to give people an introduction to what the problem really means and what it means for people. And I usually illustrate it by something that's happened in my own experience, but I do put forward positive proposals. I don't leave the chapter mm. and say and say nothing can be done. I leave the chapter and say, this is what could be done. Now, I'm, I'm conscious that my time with you is nearly up, so I want to try and wedge in two very last quick questions. I mean, you, you mentioned Tony Blair. I mean, in many respects, I, I think back to your time in office with him as both, you know, the high points of teamwork and then potentially the low points of it in terms of how that relationship evolved. It feels that a lot of your book is about the power of teamwork, the power of the, being human as a team sport. What, what did you learn about the highs and lows of teamwork from that kind of 97 onwards piece? And what might you change, do you think? Well, I think you're all part of a team. And and, and obviously, there's creative tension in a team. It didn't prevent us from doing things. I caught the story of John Kennedy, the president, going down to Cape Canaveral, the space station, uh, when they were trying to put him, uh, you know, the, the space race and, and, and win it. And, and he goes around the people at the Cape Canaveral and he asks them, what do you do? And the first person says, I'm an engineer. The second person says, I'm the astronaut. The third person says, I'm a researcher. And the fourth person, then he comes to, comes to the person who's the cleaning lady and, and he asks her what she's doing. And she says, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And she felt part of a team. She was so impressed and uh, inspired by the project that you should doing that the job that she said was the job that indicates teamwork all of them were there to put a person on the moon and uh, i think that's where you want to get but to. but i, but I suppose it's, a, of, it's an expertly sidestep answer gone but in terms of what you learned in that particular dynamic of two very large characters the sorts of characters that have got to find common cause on a global basis what's the advice you'd give 
to other world leaders about the leadership experience you both had, both for better and for worse? Well, I did talk about it. I did say there was creative tension because I had my own ideas. Uh, obviously, other people had uh, their their ideas and wanted to pursue them. I think on most issues, uh, we we worked very well together. I mean, we, we, we did. This was a reforming government. We created a minimum wage. We created Sure Start. We created educational maintenance lines. You could go through all the things that we did that were changing the world. We had, of course, uh, thanks to Tony, a peace settlement in, in Northern Ireland. We legislated first uh, for um, relationships uh, to be to be recognised when they were gay and everything else. All these things that happened under this uh, under this uh, government, and we did deliver debt relief for the poorest countries, doubling aid to Africa. Uh, you know, we trebled the finance available to the National Health Service. All these things happened. So I think when you look at the record of a government, you've got to look at what actually emerges from what obviously was uh, at times creative creative tensions. You know, mm. when I look at leadership. Leadership is about setting a goal, setting a mission. It's about people understanding what that mission is. That's incredibly important that people understand what that mission is. And of course, you've got to have an ability to communicate it. And perhaps I wasn't as good at communicating as I should have been. And I, I do accept that in the book when I write of some of the things that I thought I failed to, to do well. But the important thing is that you have a shared mission. And I just would like you to reflect on your own Twitter handle as my final question, where you sort of lay out a trio of achievements, former UK Prime Minister, now UN Envoy for Global Education, always Wraith Rovers. Well, because that's where I was brought up. I started off as a program seller at Wraith Rovers because then you, we didn't have that much money and then you got into the game free of charge. I have ended up as a shareholder in Wraith Rovers, which is actually an act of charity, but I've supported them all my life and they, they, they've won two cups. They may not be the most successful football team, but I think this sense that you're part of a community and a community is part of you is something that never, never really leaves you. And I, I think we have remembered in this crisis just how important our neighbours, our friends, our relatives, the people around us are. And I think that's why Britain will emerge. But I think most of the world will emerge in, in a more humble way, accepting that some of the things we took for granted are actually things that are so important to our lives that we do not want to live without them again. Gordon Brown, thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Hold up. 